world's most high-profile team sale process, which has dragged on for many months, may be ending with the owner saying, actually, never mind. It's Tuesday, April 18th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Manchester United might not get sold after all. Here to tell us what in the world is going on is front office sports writer Doug Greenberg. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me, Owen. It's uh, it's good to be back, as <laughs> yeah. always. Uh, so you've been our local Sisyphus dragging the pushing the boulder up the hill uh, several times a week on this story and then watching it fall back down so you can write a, <laughs> another update. Um, so what's what's the latest? You know, every time this story, and I know you know this because you're in our meetings, but every time this story shows up on our potential lineup, I'm like, oh, God, not again. Um, yeah, the most recent development is just that, um, and maybe this is actually a good thing for my my mental sanity, but it, it's looking like this process may finally come to a conclusion, not with the result that everybody thought or wanted, um, and that is that the Glazer family are getting pretty confident that they're going to get some minority investment in the club. Um, you know, ultimately to invest in stadium, uh, the grounds and um, some other things that would help boost the value of the club. But it's now starting to look like the full outright sale of the club is not going to happen anymore, um, which is great for Joel and Avram Glazer, but it's not amazing for everybody else. Yeah, and, and right. So we should talk about the Glazer family. So the club was bought by Malcolm Glazer, who's Joel Navram's dad. Uh, in he took a majority stake in two thousand five, uh, passed away in twenty fourteen, left the club to Joel Navram, and also their other siblings, Kevin, Brian, Edward, and Darcy. So those four want out. Correct. Yeah, as I understand it, it sounds it's I don't even think it's I think they're mostly indifferent. And I think, you know, they're looking at a potential payday um, in, in this and they're totally cool to get out for the right price. Um, whereas Joel and Avram, I think, are a little bit more attached. You know, they are the co-chairman um, of the club and the exec, sorry, the exec, executive co-chairman. They've been the ones who have been most involved in the club since uh, the Glazer family acquired it. So I think they're kind of attached to it. Um, but yeah, I think the, I think the other siblings are, are down to get out for the right price. And we should jump back to when the first announcements came around that the club was getting sold. Um, it felt like the Glazers, all of the Glazers were ready to, to take the money and run here because of fans just making so much noise about this. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Man- Manchester United fans have been trying to get the Glazers to sell the club for, I'm going to say at minimum a decade, uh, maybe more. And, you know, I think everyone was getting pretty excited when it sounded like they were actually going to sell the club uh, in November. And then the outright bids started coming in from uh, Sheikh Jazim uh, from Qatar and Jim Gratcliffe from uh, the UK. And it was all looking well and good. They put out these bids that um, were going to be a world record for buying a club, which makes sense considering Manchester United's uh, legacy and history. And it wasn't meeting the asking price that the Glazers were looking for, which was $7.4 billion, which is nutty. Um, you know, uh, Sheikh Jassim and and Ratcliffe had both put in bids reportedly of up to, you know, more than $6.2 billion. Again, a record uh, for a sport for any sports team in the world. Um, but the Glazers wanted almost, you know, more than a billion more than that. So, 
it almost feels like they were setting the bar too high on purpose because they didn't actually want to sell it. Um, and now, you know, they it's become pretty clear that they were just looking for some minority investment. Um, and it looks like they're going to get it and get their wish. And and all the Man U fans are probably not going to be thrilled about it. Yeah, I want to get to that last point in just a sec. But yeah, looking back now, that price kind of seems like a tell. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want to whatever first number you give out is going to be the ceiling that you're ultimately going to get, probably. Um, so, you know, why not just throw out a crazy number in the beginning? But they really held to that number the way other team owners who are more serious about a sale might not have, might have said, you know, 6.2 is really good. It's a record. The Washington Commanders, who are, you know, a, a, um, a storied, if not always a good story, NFL franchise just sold for, it's looking like around $6 billion. So yeah, 6.2 is would be a world record. Like, you can't complain too much about that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, right. And look at the Commander sale. Like, I think there are, you know, and, and our, our colleague AJ has actually even reported on this, that, you know, it was looking for a little bit like, um, like Dan Snyder was just trying to say he would sell a club just to get people off his back. But you know what? He he got a $6 billion asking price. That was a really good price. Or sorry, not asking price. He got a $6 billion deal for the club, for the team. And it, uh, that's a really good price. $6.2 billion for Man U. You know, maybe, uh, you know, Sheikh Jassim would up it to 6.5 something. That would be a really good price. Again, a world record. Um, that would be a nice little payday for the Glazers. But, you know, I, I think that $7.4 billion that they had originally put out I think it initially looked like, you know, they were just trying to highball, right? Like they were just trying to set the price high so that they might get some higher bids and then they settle, you know, maybe a little under 7 billion, something like that. But now it's just looking like they were purposely setting the price that high to be like, so that they could have an excuse and say, well, look at that. Like no one better asking price, like nothing we can do about that if people don't ask or if people don't meet it. So um, it, it really is starting to look like they never had any intention of selling. Whereas, you know, other team sales, even when we thought they had no intention of selling, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case. And yeah, just to jump back to the fans, fans were protesting the Glazers at, it seemed like every home game, uh, at the start of this year. And I have to think those protests are coming back. And if they go ahead and pull the plug, it, I mean, I can I imagine they would come back in stronger force, right? Um, I, and and not even just the beginning of this season. The, these protests have been going on for a very long time. Um, I, I think the relationship between the Glazers and Manchester United supporters has been contentious for a really, really long time. I, honestly, maybe even since the beginning. I don't think that the club is thrilled that they have American ownership. Um, it's a pretty storied club and. Frankly, American ownership is not going over very well in the Premier League in general. And I can say this as a Chelsea fan uh, who has a newly minted American owner who is massively disappointing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's where it's coming from for a lot of these uh, English fans. They're they're not really thrilled um, about this whole situation. And and it's it's understandable, you know, given the way that the Glazers have treated the club over the years. All right, Doug Greenberg, I'm guessing this is not the last time we'll have you on about this, but uh, we shall see. But good luck with that. Yeah, thank you. I I really hope this story is over soon. (laughs) Thank you, Owen. Let's see what else is happening out there. Oakland A's fans are planning a reverse boycott on June 13th, in which they will protest team ownership, namely owner John Fisher and President Dave Cavall, by bringing as many people to the game that day as possible. 
Usually, of course, one protests a business by not showing up, but the message here is that fans will come if you at least try to put a good team on the field, which the A's very much are not, and if the team commits to staying in Oakland. Also, frankly, no one would notice if fans protested by not showing up. The A's are last in MLB attendance and were last year as well. The Cleveland Browns and First Energy have ended their stadium naming rights deal by mutual agreement. The Brown Stadium has been called First Energy Stadium since 2013, when the Akron-based electric utility company paid $107 million for a deal that was supposed to last through 2030. That was before the 2020 Ohio nuclear bribery scandal, in which $60 million was paid to a company controlled by Larry Householder, the former Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, in exchange for passing a $1.3 billion bailout for nuclear power operators in the state. Until a new deal is struck, the venue will be called simply Cleveland Brown Stadium. And Disney is expecting to take in over $40 million in ad sales for the NHL playoffs on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN+, and ABC, sources told Front Office Sports. Warner Bros. Discovery, which owns TNT and will broadcast the Stanley Cup Finals for the first time in its history, has already booked over 70 advertisers. Up next, it's tax day. Hope you filed and that everything went smoothly. I spoke to Lawrence D. Mandelker, an attorney at Venable, who helps athletes manage their accounts. He explained what kinds of pitfalls athletes can run into and why it is not uncommon for athletes who are making tens of millions of dollars per year to go broke not long after their careers are over. We'll have that conversation right after this. Here's what's trending now. You can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. Everything they need to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity. Whether your business generates millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, take advantage of this special financing offer of no payments or interest for six months at netsuite.com frontoffice. That's netsuite.com slash front office. All right. I am now joined by Lawrence D. Mandelker. He's an attorney at Venable. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, to start, why don't you just tell us about the work you do specifically with athletes? Sure. So I'm a trust and estates attorney, which means that um, I'm involved in the wealth planning for clients. I help them figure out how specifically I help them figure out how um, certain taxes are going to impact their their estates after they're gone. Help them maximize the amount of property that's going to pass. Help them build their legacy, if you will, Uh, figure out how we can make sure that the people they want to benefit after they're gone or during their life are benefited, whether it's people or charities, make sure that it's done in the most efficient way possible, the most effective way possible to accomplish their goals and also uh, minimize things like expenses and taxes that are going to get in the way and, and reduce what their their family, their friends, their charities uh, are eventually going to get. So you work with both athletes and a bunch of other high net worth or individuals, actors, business people, um, but athletes have the somewhat unique situation of the vast majority of their earning is, you know, maybe just a few years, maybe 10, 15, if they're lucky. Um, So how does that impact their finances and what you do? Sure. So with, you know, as opposed to someone who's in, you know, real estate development or in the stock world on Wall Street, you know, an, an athlete's 
main earning potential is going to be a certain number of years and it's going to hit them very early in life. Um, and then it could be, you know, gone at any point. And that's, you know, somewhat similar to other professionals, but with athletes, it's even more common. You know, their careers can be fleeting, you know, they can have a devastating injury early on, you know, in some sports, you know, the contracts aren't even guaranteed. So, you know, what they think they are going to receive may not actually come to fruition. Um, so we've got to be mindful of the fact that what's coming in today may stop all of a sudden um, and really look for the long term. We've got to use they've got a tremendous opportunity, you know, through their through their you know, God given abilities, through their talent, through their hard work. Uh, but we have to make sure that we can make a life for them out of this opportunity. So it's a very consolidated, condensed time frame where we're looking, we're using, you know, seeds today, but trying to make sure that they're going to build into trees for tomorrow. Um, in terms of athlete financial literacy, uh, what's the range of, of financial literacy that you see among these, this population? You know, it really, it really spans the whole spectrum. Um, some people, and it's, it's not just related to athletes. You know, sometimes you'll see individuals who come into a lot of money and their whole, their whole lifestyle changes and their whole view um, changes. So it's, it's important for them to be um, financially literate, to understand what they can do. And I think to a large extent, they're busy working on, you know, their, their career, um, their bodies, their game, the strategies, you know, what they need to succeed on the field. And they really, we need them to be smart, to have good judgment, um, but as far as getting into the nitty gritty and deciding things, you know, that's why I think it's important for them to get in with the right advisors and to know who they can trust so that the advisors can give them the specific details. They're going to take they're going to make the big picture decisions. Um, but I think it's real. I think they really need to focus on the advisors who have the time and the expertise to help them until they transition to the next phase of their, you know, their post playing career. I think for a lot of people, there's, I think the most common assumption is, you know, these guys are making, you know, often 10, 20, sometimes more million dollars per year. And even if it's not that much over the course of a career, it's, you know, athletes are often at least in the tens of millions in their earnings. You know, how could they possibly have any financial trouble? I mean, I think most people listening to this would be very happy with a one-time payment of even $5 million. Um, and, you know, they might just quit their job right then and, and live off of that. How often would you say athletes run into like actual financial trouble? I think it's very common. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, recently I saw two articles, um, one about Antoine Walker, the NBA superstar, and the other one about uh, Chad Johnson, Ocho Cinco. Um, and they both sort of illustrate the two ends of this. Um, Antoine Walker, it was interesting, made, earned over $108 million during his playing career. And this was in an article, so it's publicly available. Um, and the money was all gone within two years post-career. So he spent it. Um, and, you know, these athletes are, um, you know, they're, they're thrown a lot of money at front, up front. And whether it's signing bonuses or huge contracts, and it may be more than they've grown up with. So it's, you know, there's this tendency to live the lifestyle. And, you know, the, the article recently about Chad Johnson was interesting because he said he never bought real jewelry. People were buying $80,000 watches. He went to Claire's and bought, you know, fake jewelry. 
as he said, it looks the same. I'm still going to have you know the same bling. It's still going to be the same market, but I saved 83% of my salary. Um, so, you know, and he flew, he made a point about flying spirit airlines as opposed to flying private. Um, so it's a brave it's, man it, there, right? It was just very interesting how, you know, he saved his money, um, you know, to, to give himself the ability to do what he wanted to do post playing career. Uh, so that's sort of really important. It's really hard. You know, again, we sit here and we say, wow, $5 million bonus, you know, that's going to last them a lifetime. But if you think about the the role that they're in, they're spending a lot to you know perform on the field, and whether that means they they have you know special trainers or special you know they're going for um, certain evaluations and they've got other expenses that we may not have. And you know I'm not going to cry for someone that's getting a five million dollar check and has some expenses to pay. I got that, but um, you know they also have this you know they're in a world where they're getting thrown investment offers. You know, everyone's pitching an idea to them. Um, their friends are coming out and maybe, you know, offering them to invest in a business or asking for gifts. I mean, they've got charities that are asking for gifts and they want to help everyone. But sometimes it's hard for them to figure out what's the what's the best investment? You know, where you know, how much should I give to the charity? How much shouldn't? And I think that's, again, where it's important to build up this team of advisors who you can rely upon and, you know, ask them for it. Let them be the gatekeepers. How, what, what's the responsible way to be making so much money in your 20s, 30s? And of course, you're going to live an expensive lifestyle. Like, how could you not if you're, if you're just making that much? Um, and it's just so easy to spend thousands of dollars at a time. But, you know, when, whatever it is, 35, 32, 40, that check is going to stop. And you might, you know, maybe you're not one of those athletes that does commercials or gets into broadcasting or like just has some side hustle that works out. That might be kind of it for you. And you still have this expensive life. What's what's the responsible way to to plan for that? Yeah. So again, I, you know, I think it comes back to the advisors. And I think having the right team of advisors can help you budget and figure out what are your wants, what are your needs, you know, where where's the line? Someone with and if you talk about that with someone who's not emotionally invested, um, but who understands, you know, the persona that you want to have, who understands where you want your career to go, who understands where you want your post-playing career to go and what opportunities you want, what you need to get there. I think taking the broader approach from a purely objective point of view is going to allow you to do that. Focus in on, you know, how do I minimize my expenses? What am I going to spend? You know, I'm going to go on vacation, but how much should I spend on the vacation? Uh, you know, issues like that. But I think taking the step back and relying on people who don't have, you know, who aren't benefiting from that money. You know, it's hard to ask people, you know, when you're when you're taking 20 people on vacation to a private island, it's hard to ask them if that's a little too expensive. Uh, but if you ask the person who's sitting in their office, who's going to look at the credit card bill, maybe they'll have a different approach to that question. Is there anything other than that, you know, athletes can go broke? Are, are there any other misconceptions that you see in the public um, just from your, your experience working with these folks? I think people underestimate the amount of um, financial education that athletes do get. And I think that we see more and more and, and again, not just athletes, but I think we see more and more um, stories of, of 
whether it's entertainers or athletes that are starting to expand their, their earning potential and expand it through other means, whether it means they're, you know, they're trying to get into sports ownership and, you know, become part of an ownership team um, to buy a franchise or whether it means that they're going into business, business dealings or, you know, buying up franchises, you know, whether it's restaurants or, or car dealerships, you know, I think we see more and more of that. And I think it's not something that people necessarily think about. I think the conception is the athlete goes, they spend their money and they end up, you know, with very little and they have to get, you know, a job doing, you know, something on the air related to, you know, what they did on the field. And before we let you, we let you go, um, tax day, favorite day of the year, worst day of the year, just another day, someone in your shoes, what's that like? <laughs> it's an interesting time. It's exciting. There's a lot of, uh, you know, last minute questions, last minute phone calls. Um, and there's always uh, time to file for an extension. So it happens a couple times a year. All right, Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. I saw some projections from The Athletic on the NHL playoffs with some really surprising numbers. Before any games were played, they had the Boston Bruins with only a 50% chance of making it through two rounds and a 26% chance of winning the whole thing, followed by reigning champs the Colorado Avalanche with 14% and the Edmonton Oilers and the otherworldly Connor McDavid at 11%. Unfortunately for all of them, the New Jersey Devils are actually going to win the whole thing. That's it for today. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.